Um, this past year, we adopted a Unitarian Universalist liturgical year based on a model created by our own Susan Smith, who, in addition to being a member of our church, is also on the Congregational Life Staff for the Southern Region of the Unitarian Universalist Association. It's a big region. She stays on the go a lot. Um, but we're happy when she can be with us. I believe she is still at leadership school this week or just back. At this point in the year when people may be church shopping and maybe wanting to know more about Unitarian Universalism, um, we've come full circle back to the point where we focus on our history and our heritage and what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist. And this morning I'm hoping to combine that focus with some more recent history. The events of three weeks ago at the First Unitarian Universalist Church of New Orleans. And I hope to provide some thoughts on how we might respond if something similar happens here and how a proud history and a hopeful life-affirming theology might inform that response. On that late July morning, the organization known as Operation Save America, or formerly Operation Rescue, better known for targeting abortion clinics and the patients and medical staff there, chose instead to descend on the First Unitarian Universalist Church of New Orleans, a congregation housed in a historic building, I believe it was built in 1830, um, on South Claiborne Avenue, one of three of our congregations in that city still working to recover completely from the devastation of Katrina. And OSA's reasoning for this action, if reason is a word we can use, was that the congregation had provided support for a Planned Parenthood clinic under construction nearby and had even provided a rain location for the official groundbreaking ceremony in keeping with the UUA's longstanding support for reproductive freedom and availability of health care in the United States, never mind that Planned Parenthood has probably prevented many more abortions than they have performed. The protesters attended the service quietly at first, but chose, of all things, a time of silent meditation for a recently deceased church member, a beloved young mother of two named Kara Morgan, who had helped to plan her own memorial service shortly before her death from cancer. Kara had said, in apparently characteristic humor, that the plan sounded good except for the whole being dead part. And it was that brave spirit that they were mourning. In the middle of this silent meditation, this sacred time for the opening of breaking hearts and the tentative beginnings of healing, these protesters stood up, took off their outer shirts to reveal their OSA t-shirts, and began to shout that they were bringing the truth of the gospel to the synagogue of Satan as they pushed their graphic pamphlets into people's hands. The celebrant in the pulpit that morning was Reverend Deanna Vandiver, who is a community minister serving the New Orleans area congregation at the Center for Ethical, serving all three of the congregations at the Center for Ethical Living and Social Justice Renewal. That service was celebrating youth who just completed a social justice training there. And Reverend Vandiver told the protesters they were welcome to stay and worship peacefully if they could stop interrupting the service. But if they wanted to continue their protest, they should move out to the front steps of the church. The youth led the congregation in singing the song we learned earlier, Circle Round for Freedom. And they had the congregation actually circle up. A few of the protesters chose to stay in silence. 
Others did go out to the front steps. My colleague, Bart Frost, the director of religious education at First UU New Orleans, went around to lock the doors after the protesters had been escorted out. And then he went to the classrooms to be sure the kids were safe. Teachers had already moved them to an inside hallway because the protesters were outside the windows showing their graphic pictures to the children. To the children. This was their idea of civil disobedience. Let that sink in for a little bit. Meanwhile, Reverend Jim Vanderweel of Community Church Unitarian Universalist, because they were all worshiping together on this Sunday, as they often do um, nowadays, um, he was a recent guest actually in our own pulpit. He called the police, um, who gathered a block away in case things did get violent. But it's worth noting that nobody called for the arrest of these protesters. That is not what the church wanted. We understand protest. We do protest. I mean, it was a matter of respect. It was a matter of respect for the worship service. The youth who had been through the training that week were gaining firsthand experience in the kind of nonviolent communication techniques they had learned. And after the service, some of them did try to dialogue with the protesters, occasionally mildly successfully, but for the most part they were met with more angry rhetoric and proclamations that the loved one they had been mourning was in hell. OSA posted video of their invasion on their website until they received enough pushback and bad publicity, even from some in their own community, that they themselves removed it. The OSA leaders are now saying that those who spoke out in the church service had not been to the training for such events and that they had possibly, possibly gone too far. We haven't really heard any real outrage yet that I know of from, from that side of the issue or that very conservative side of the issue because there's one thing I do want to make clear. Unitarian Universalists are not a monolith. Yes, our denomination has supported reproductive choice, reproductive freedom for years. At the same time, we respect all of the people within our walls who feel differently. I think there is some consensus that maybe we can work to prevent, we can work together, we can find common ground to prevent abortions to not have so many, but at the same time to make them, as I believe Bill Clinton said, safe, legal, and rare. And so there is, I'm not saying there's no room for difference, but I'm saying difference should come with respect. And this was not a respectful entrance to this congregation. We have every reason to be proud of our brothers and sisters in New Orleans. They responded to the scary violation of sacred space with more dignity and grace than their invaders had a right to expect. They responded in love when love was not the message received. So can we learn from them? Absolutely. I was asked by a congregant in the days that followed these events if we have a plan for such an occurrence, and we really thought it might be imminent, except that, like, as I said, I think they, they themselves have decided that maybe invading a church service is not the best PR. But um, after the Knoxville shooting in 2008, um, a number of us, board members and others, did take a security training with an officer from the sheriff's department who specializes in such training. Um, as a result, we did add the second board person of the day, or the B-pods as we've come to call them. And one of the duties of that person is the task of watching, not fearfully or suspiciously, but just mindfully, just mindfully for any unusual actions. And in teacher training next week, 
I guess I'll have to cover plans for relocating the children to the hallway or to the second through fifth room where we can put the large rolling whiteboard and put it in front of the windows. So we are thinking about this, but we are not thinking in fear. We are not thinking in, that, uh, in, uh, in any way that we are going to close in or that we are going to refrain from our message of love and freedom. So you'll go forward from this day doing the work to see that you are grounded in your own spiritual discipline and ready to receive in love a message that may not be delivered that way. We have the model of New Orleans to inspire us for sure, and we have the same historical, covenantal, and theological foundation on which they stood. We talk about standing on the side of love. And while the Standing on the Side of Love campaign is sponsored and heavily identified with our denomination, with the Unitarian Universalist Association, it's also its own nonprofit. It was designed to be a multi-faith or interfaith effort to lift up a liberal religious voice in response to many of the issues confronting us today, not only reproductive justice, but voting rights, immigration reform, marriage equality, mass incarceration, and issues of economic and environmental justice. It was founded in 2009, but our foundation for standing on the side of love goes far deeper and much further back into our history. As we stand on the side of love, as I said, we stand on the shoulders of heretical heroes. We stand with the second century theologian origin of Alexandria, considered a forerunner of universalism because he taught that the journey toward God, toward a God of love and light, is a natural destination for all of us. We're all going home. We stand with Arius, whose interpretation of the doctrine of the Trinity as non-biblical led him to challenge the Council of Nicaea, where that doctrine was decided, and he got himself imprisoned in the process. We stand with the 16th century Spanish Catholic physician Michael Cervetas, whose anti-Trinitarian books got him imprisoned twice by the Catholics and eventually imprisoned and executed by the Calvinists in Geneva. And even more so... We stand with those Unitarians and Universalists that shaped the history of our own country, with John Murray, who established the first Universalist church in America and who preached, go out into the highways and byways, give the people not hell, but hope and courage, preach the kindness and the everlasting love of God. We stand with the 19th century Unitarian minister and staunch abolitionist Theodore Parker, whose words would influence Abraham Lincoln. I think heard him use the words of the people, for the people, by the people in a sermon. True story. And much later, the Reverend Martin Luther King, who paraphrased Parker when he said that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. And it really does. It really does. Sometimes it can be achingly slow but it really does. Indeed, our two faith traditions, as I mentioned earlier, are more steeped in the history of this nation than the relatively recent movement of fundamentalism, whether it's the small-left fundamentalism that's kind of happening within different religious traditions around the world or the capital-left movement within Protestantism, which is actually an early 20th century phenomenon. And you look at Unitarianism and Universalism, which even in colonial days were emerging movements within established churches such as the Congregationalists and the Baptists. Yes, we share a great deal of history with the Baptists. Our friends at the Highland Center are cooperative Baptists, and they look a lot more like us than maybe the Southern Baptists. But all Baptists and Universalists share 
a lot of things, our congregational polity, a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of foundation there that we share. But as I said, capital F fundamentalism began as a reactionary Protestant movement in the early 20th century. They were reacting in part to higher level biblical scholarship that was kind of truly revealing the human authorship of scripture, to scientific discovery and the desire to teach evolution in school, to an increased awareness of other world religions and to their own feelings of displacement by a large number of non-Protestant immigrants coming into the country at the time. My relatives were some of them. They began to demand an adherence to biblical inerrancy even in matters of science and history and the acceptance of Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior through a conversion experience. These were the spiritual ancestors of the current Christian right that came into prominence in the 1970s and 80s. Um, We have a UU Christian minister in Oklahoma, Reverend Ron Robinson, who has preached in this pulpit before, is a fantastic guy, has a wonderful missional church going right now. Um, And he says he thinks fundamentalism is a misnomer, that given that the fundamentals are what's always in dispute, he would prefer inerrancy movement. And he said with a wink on Facebook this week that inerrancy, two words, would also work. We stand, too, on our tradition of covenant. Our principles are a covenant among our congregations about the way we will be together in association. And we use those principles to make our own covenants. We have a covenant of right relations right here in this congregation. For those of you who are here, it was a process. It was a long process. It was a process of small groups meeting together, deciding what was going to go into this covenant. Claudia can tell you she was very deeply involved. She was one of the final writers that took all of our stuff, she and Dennis Lauer, and made it all make sense and made it all who we are and how we are together with each other. And we stand with covenant-making people since the 1600s, Cambridge Platform. That was not Unitarian theology, but that was, that was a covenantal church. They placed more emphasis on relationship than on creed or belief. And so, in a way, we've been in school right here within these walls to learn to face whatever challenges await us from beyond these walls. Because we deal with difference. We dialogue with each other. We have made a sacred agreement, a covenant, that we can express these differences in love and in respect and expect the same from each other. And we can call each other back gently but firmly into right relation when the covenant is broken. And that brings us back to JLA, as we like to call him, James Luther Adams, 20th century minister, scholar, and theologian. And he wrote an essay, and you can still get the book. The book is called On Being Human Religiously, and it's a collection of essays. And in the essay called Guiding Principles of of a Free Faith, he came up with these five smooth stones. Again, religious liberalism depends on the principle that revelation is continuous. It is never sealed. We never stop discovering new truths. All relations between persons ought ideally to rest on mutual free consent and not on coercion. We choose to be in relationship with each other, and through our covenant we honor and revere and lift up that choice. Religious liberalism affirms the moral obligation to direct one's effort toward the establishment of a just and loving community. 
It is this which makes the role of the prophets central and indispensable in liberalism. Think about it. The prophets of the Hebrew Testament were the troublemakers, the subversives, the ones who called out the authorities. Think of Amos, whose God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. But let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The next UUA common read will be a book by Paul Razor entitled, In a Very Timely Manner, Reclaiming Prophetic Witness, Liberal Religion in the Public Square, which calls us back to a prophetic tradition that is ours to claim. Susan B. Anthony is a Unitarian, a prophet of feminism. Dorothea Dix, a Unitarian who helped reform much of the treatment of the mentally ill at a time when they were pretty much warehoused. Um, many, many people on whose shoulders we stand. We deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the necessity of social incarnation. It has to come through our hands. Finally, we hold that the resources, divine and human, that are available for the achievement of meaningful change justify an attitude of ultimate optimism. Or in the spirit of our, Unitarian, of our universalist tradition, I should say, we have the resources to love the hell out of the world. <laughs> so let me be clear, to reach out in love, to draw the circle wider still, is neither to accept the message of fear and exclusion nor to applaud or excuse the tactics of the messengers. We can respond to them as people, recognizing our common humanity, as Bishop Tutu has said, while stating plainly that their religious freedom is not threatened by our own, that their religious principles cannot be enforced as secular law because they do not draw the circle wide enough to embrace a true democracy or even a true republic. In this, we stand with Jefferson, who, although he never joined one of our churches, plainly stated his admiration for the Unitarian path, wrote his own version of the Bible, and opined, or edited, I should say, um, and opined that by the end of his century, everyone would be a Unitarian. He was a tad optimistic, but nevertheless, we are in good company. And so I close with a quote from Reverend Deanna Vandiver. Beloveds, I have never been prouder of my faith community. They met the challenge of religious terrorism with courage and a commitment to the values of our faith, standing on the side of love without once surrendering to hate. Now is the time to stand together, beloveds. Now is the time to remember that we are not alone and that we are called forward to live lives of radical hospitality grounded in courage and compassion. So may it be.